Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Hello, listeners. As you may have seen on our social media, we have some nifty new stickers commemorating Pride. They say, I dig Pride, and there's some cool archaeological layers with the appropriate colors. Um, You can enter to win a pack of them, and you can do that by going to our accounts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and reposting the giveaway post with the hashtag dirt pride if you do that uh by the end of the week which will be on june 19th well it's not the end of the week but it's the end of a week from when the giveaway starts (laughs) at the end of a week we will select uh, a random winner from each of those three platforms and send you some stickers so go ahead and do that go to our social media Repost those posts. Hashtag Dirt Pride. You get some stickers. On with the show. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today, we are journeying to Southeast Asia, the modern state of Cambodia, to be exact. We're going to talk about the site of Angkor Wat, also known as Angkor, um, a subject that rolls together cool archaeological technologies, the romantic, and usually super wrong, idea of the ancient crumbling city left to be swallowed by a jungle, some 19th century colonialism, and more. Yes, indeed. I'm I'm very excited for the more. (laughs) Also slightly afraid. Uh, So speaking of romanticizing, I'm pretty sure um, Angkor Wat is the a major part of the background scenery in in a big scene in the first Tomb Raider movie, the the one with Angelina Jolie. Um, so it's been it's been a hot minute since I've seen that, but I do remember the feeling that it had in the movie, and I think it kind of exists in the public consciousness as, as shorthand for like exotic remains of collapsed ancient civilization, in the same way that like you'd see the the pyramids in in jungle covered meso in South America and the, those like you know, swallowed ruins. But just as we talked about in our Aztec, Inca, and Maya episode and our Harappa episode, the idea of collapse is almost always really an inaccurate term when it comes to talking about the ways that civilizations evolve, transition, or end. But before we get to all of our thoughts on that, let's back up a second and actually give listeners a description of what it is and where it is we're talking about. Let Mm -hmm. us set the scene. So this is taken from a piece on The Conversation. Big ups to The Conversation. Is that the sound of an up? That's the sound of, oh, that was a little up. That's the sound the up makes? (laughs) Yeah, that was a little up, but I didn't want to spike my my levels. Oh, okay. Mm, Sound sound engineer over here. (laughs) 
Cambodia's famous temple of Angkor Wat is one of the world's largest religious monuments visited by over 2 million tourists each year. There's many people. Thank you. That's a, no, it's just a lot. Of, <laughs> That's I'm a lot of people. Just, yeah, I'm just like, it's hot here and I'm thinking about a lot of crowds. and mm. It's hot there? Yes. Is it humid in yeah. your house? No, fortunately. It's a dry heat. Well, Angkor Wat was built in the early 12th century CE by King Suryavarman II, um, one of the most famous kings of the Angkorian civilization that lasted from approximately the 9th to the 15th century CE. The structure is so strongly associated with Cambodian identity, even today, that it appears on the nation's flag. Mm -hmm. To clarify... Angkor Wat is the Cambodian name, and it translates to something like Temple City or City of Temples in the Khmer. Khmer. Yeah. Khmer. Is it Khmer? Khmer? I say, I say Khmer. <laughs> it's like a, like okay. a slightly aspirated K. So it's a ha. Okay. Not, not really. No, it's, it's, not not a, it's not Khmer. It's Khmer. But the, I kind of... In the Khmer language. Mm. So you may sometimes see it referred to as the Angkor Wat. The temple complex is dedicated to the Hindu god Vishnu. Angkor Wat combines two basic plans of Khmer temple architecture, the Temple Mountain and <laughs> the later Galleried Temple. It is designed to represent Mount Meru, which is home of the devas, the gods in Hindu mythology, not like Ariana Grande. <laughs> not devas. <laughs> um... <laughs> Around Angkor Wat, uh, there's a moat that's more than three miles long. It's about five kilometers. Um, and an outer wall that's about 2.2 miles long, being 3.6 kilometers. Um, inside the outer wall are three rectangular galleries, each raised above the next. At the center of the temple stands a quincux. <laughs> quincux. A quincux of towers. Um that, so if you are a little rusty on your Latin, uh, that's five points arranged in a cross, like the depiction of a five on a domino or on a die. So there's one at each of the four corners and then one in the middle. Right. Quincunks. Quincunks. Unlike most Angkorians. I want listeners to slip that into conversation, by the way, if you can, and then tell us, tell us about it, preferably while you're doing yourself. it. Yeah. yeah, film yourself um, doing it. Unlike most Angkorian temples, Angkor Wat is oriented to the West. Um, scholars are divided as to the significance of this. So it's a thing. Or maybe it's plans. not a thing. It's just, the plans were backwards. It's a thing. The temple is, is admired even today. Well, the temple is admired today for the grandeur and harmony of the architecture. It's extensive bas-reliefs. And it's, it's bas-relief, right? Yeah. It's not bass relief. Okay. Well, I don't. That's yeah. It that's is Billy Big Mouth. <laughs> no, bass relief is when the batteries die in that. Yeah, thing. getting rid of your Billy Big Mouth. Yep. Um, there it is. And, um, and for the numerous devatas adorning its walls, the term devata can be a plural of the Hindu god Deva. Remember gods, um, as in like the big ones. Uh, but the term usually refer, refers to a category of minor deities. So, you know, in Greek, you have like the, mm -hmm. the gods and then the daemon. Yeah. Um, so there are male and female devadas with many specialties. 
Uh, there are the Vana Deva- the Vana Devadas, which are forest spirits, perhaps descendants of a an earlier sort of nature spirit cult. Uh, yeah. The Grama Devada, which are the the village gods, so they're sort of is that tied to a particular that's those are those are place. numinous. Yes, like they're yes they're gods of like placeness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Devadas of river crossings, caves, mountains, and so on. So every human activity has its devada, its spiritual counterpart or aspect. Yeah, it is kind of like the the ancient, the classical ones where there's like a god of doorways and a god of like stubbing your toe. I don't know. I don't think that's a thing. Probably Asclepius. He's the medicine god. You could stub your toe and be like, no! Angkor Wat is the prime example of the classical style of Khmer architecture. The Angkor Wat style. Eh. Uh, eh. Eh. Um, the titular Angkor Wat style. Um, by the 12th century, Khmer architects had become very skilled and confident in the use of sandstone as the main building material. They're just like, yeah. We got this. Check it. It's sandstone. <laughs> um, the binding agent used to join the blocks is yet to be identified. Although natural resins or a slaked lime um, <laughs> has been suggested. Delicious. I did see architectural notes that suggest that there was actually a lot of like mortise and tenon joints and, and architectural things, stone masonry that didn't involve a binding material, which like, is also very skillful in itself, but um, it seems to vary. So, so there could be, so there's possibly not extensive use of mortar. I don't think, well, I don't think it's visible, whatever ah, it is. Okay. Like the, the joins are very tight. Ah, tight joins. Mm-hmm. Love them. So architecturally, the elements characteristic of the Angkor Wat style include the Ogival. Nope. OG, ogival. What? Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's pronounced ogival. The ogival. Redented towers shaped like lotus buds, half galleries to broaden passageways, axial galleries connecting enclosures, and the cruciform terraces which appear along the main axis of the temple. Axis. Axis. Mm-hmm. The main axis <laughs> of the temple. Um, is Hello. this is, is this like some like real estate speak? <laughs> well, it's architectural. Would would you like to learn about those? Yeah, I guess. Tell me about Hello. these ogives. And welcome to Architectural Jargon Corner. Ooh. So Merriam-Webster defines ogival as of relating to or having the form of an ogive or an og, which is a super not helpful. So Um, ogival means that it is shaped as an arch with a point at the top so a lot of mosques incorporate that design especially in doorways it's an arch that comes to a point redented means formed like the teeth of a saw so it's got dent in there it's got denties got dents but um in the case of the towers at Angkor Wat these are it's not teeth so much as like kind of a pine cone shape it's like the teeth are coiled and shaped on top of each other so your teeth don't it, look like it, that not anymore um, i had a great orthodontist actually i never had braces um oh i had well i had to have like prophylactic tooth shaving but i didn't have braces anyway axial galleries as as it 
might seem are hallways or long rooms along a single axis. And also, this was a really cool thing about the architecture at Angkor Wat. There are carvings along the the edges of the doorways that when the sun hits them at the right angle, they cast shadows that form the shape of the silhouette of Angkor Wat itself, which is just like, that's such a neat little detail. I like that a lot. So, typical decorative elements are devadas or apsaras, bas reliefs, um, and on pediments there are extensive garlands and narrative scenes. The statuary of Angkor Wat is considered conservative, being more static and less graceful than earlier work. Probably a bit less sort of um, limber and nude. Other elements of the design have been destroyed by looting and the passage of time including a gilded stucco on the towers, gilding on some figures on the bas-reliefs, re- bas um, and wooden ceiling panels and doors. Bas-relief could also be sheep medicine. Come on! Nothing? No, not today, <sighs> Okay. Well, let's talk about Angkorian civilization, then. Let's. Who built these things? So... Southeast Asia has been inhabited since the Neolithic era, but the seeds of Angkorian civilization were sown in the first century CE. At the turn of the millennium, Southeast Asia was becoming a hub in a vast commercial trading network that stretched from the Mediterranean to China. Indian and Chinese traders began arriving in the region in greater numbers, exposing the indigenous people to their cultures, though it was Indian culture that took hold, perhaps through the efforts of Brahmin priests. Um, Indian culture, religion, and that's both Hinduism and Buddhism, law, political theory, science, and writing spread through the region over a period of several centuries, gradually being adopted by existing states. So, remember those Angkorian seeds being sown? Well, they took a little while to sprout, but then the Angkorian period lasted from the early 9th century to the early 15th century CE in Southeast Asia. In terms of cultural accomplishments and political power, this was the golden age of what is also called Khmer civilization. The great temple cities of the Angkorian region, located near the modern town of Siemrap, are a lasting monument to the greatness of uh, Jayavarman II's successors. And even the Khmer Rouge, who looked on most of Cambodia's past history and traditions with hostility, adopted a stylized Angkorian temple for the flag of democratic Kampuchea. The kingdom founded by Jayavarman II also gave modern-day Cambodia, or Kampuchea, its name. During the early 9th to the mid-15th century CE, it was known as Kambuja, originally the name of an early North Indian state from which the current forms of the name have been derived. Maybe to put distance between himself and the seaborne Javanese with, which, with whom he was at war, Jayavarman II moved inland, settling north of the Tonle Sap, which... In case you were wondering, is a seasonally inundated freshwater lake connected oh. to the Tonle Sap River, which then joins up with the Mekong. He built several capitals before establishing one near the site where the Angkorian complexes were built. Another king, Indravarman I, who ruled from uh, 877 to 889 CE, extended Khmer control as far west as the Karat Plateau in Thailand, and he ordered the construction of a huge reservoir north of the capital to provide irrigation for wet rice cultivation. And his son, Yasovarman I, who ruled from 889 to 900 CE, built the Eastern Barre, which is a, a reservoir or a tank, uh, and there's still evidence of that today. 
Um, this system, which includes a lot of dams that are still in existence today, are more than six kilometers long and 1.6 kilometers wide. The elaborate system of canals and reservoirs built under Indravarman I and his successors were the key to Cambodia's prosperity for half a millennium. By freeing cultivators from dependence on unreliable seasonal monsoons, they made possible an early, quote, green revolution that provided oh. the country with large surpluses of rice. Irrigation. Hey, hey. Cambodia's decline during the 13th and 14th centuries probably was hastened by the deterioration of that irrigation system. Attacks by Thai and other foreign groups and the internal discord caused by dynastic rivalries diverted human resources from the system's upkeep and then it gradually fell into disrepair. Carvings show that everyday Angkorian buildings were wooden structures not much different from those found in Cambodia today. The impressive stone buildings were not used as residences by members of the royal family. Rather, they were the focus of Hindu or Buddhist cults that celebrated the divinity or Buddhahood of the monarch and his family. So they kind of served functions of both tomb and temple. Typically, their dimensions reflected the structure of the Hindu mythological universe. For example, the five towers at the center of the Angkor Wat complex represent the peaks of, like we said, Mount Meru, the center of the Hindu universe. An outer wall represents the mountains that ring the world's edge, and a moat depicts the cosmic ocean. Oh, they're... Like many other... <laughs> hmm? What? <Blood> earthers. <laughs> well, we don't know that. It could be like a stylized thing. <laughs> Can we give them the benefit of the doubt on oh, that? Oh, that, definitely. That they I'll give them flat, the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> People now have no excuse. <laughs> We've been to space. <laughs> we just got Halfway. some air spit a little bit. Oh, no. Hold uh, on. For more. Oh, God. <laughs> Angkorian society was strictly hierarchical. The king, regarded as divine, owned both the land and his subjects. Immediately below the monarch and the royal family were the Brahmin priesthood and a small class of officials who, uh, at the time of like 10th century CE, numbered around 4,000. Next were the commoners, who were burdened with heavy corvée duties. So corvée is forced labor, conscripted labor. Um, there was also a large slave class that... They're the ones that, that built what? those monuments. So, okay. Corvée labor only happened part of the time. If you were a slave, you were okay. laboring all the time. Is full that time. what that face was? It's, yeah. And so it's like a full time, part time, full time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Okay. So for many years, historians placed the collapse of the Angkor civilization in 1431 when Angkor's capital city was sacked by the Thai kingdom of Ayutthaya and abandoned. The idea that the Angkorian capital was abandoned also played a part in the 19th century colonial interpretation of Angkor as a civilization forgotten by the Cambodians and who just left it to decay in the jungle. So many tourists still come to Angkor Wat with an outdated and romanticized notion of a deserted ruin emerging from the mysterious jungle. And there are... Put a pin in that. That's going to come up. That particular noise? Oh, yeah. Okay, actually. Um, okay. So, and, and there are lots of um, tour operators and, and uh, like, an entire industry that sort of runs on that idea of being like, oh, it's so sexy. It's lost to the ages. Oh. So, stop it. <laughs> I'm going to release an album of jungle noises. So... 
if you happen to be looking for someone to blame, I mean credit with the so-called discovery of Angkor Wat, look no further than my boy, Mon Garçon, Henri, Henri Mouhot, the French naturalist and explorer that stumbled upon the site in 1860. He stumbled with along with his with his his wife Annette, his brother Charles, and his wife Jenny. Huh. Which is a fun fact. Just his sister in law's name was Jenny. For like did like like he married like an English person? I don't know. Short for Genevieve or what? No, no, like J E N N Y. All right. Like well, thanks for that mystery. Um so never mind that Henri et al. stumbled upon it after several other Europeans from like all over, like all different flavors of European had cruised through the, the site and met some of the people that were still there <laughs> over the past several <laughs> centuries. Because remember, if we're th- if if folks are assuming that it collapsed, that it like keeled over in 1431 and he gets there in 1860, it's not that long. But like the the first known white guys that showed up did so in like the 16th century, so like people are yeah, like, but he didn't get that news, I guess. No, no, he knew about some of them. <laughs> oh, and, but but he got but he he, he took the, the extra huh? step of discovering the heck out of that site and re- recording said discovery in letters and later books. Now I'm going to read a quote from him. Oh boy, off my phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we are millennials. I did this on the on the commute. Um so working nine to five. So he Henri Muhot compared Angkor to the pyramids. Great, like the Egyptian ones. Yeah. Um so he described Angkor, quote. Um also he spelled it Angkor O N G C O R. Oh, I encore. thought you meant like encore, like again. No, like, no, like like <laughs> encore, but like by a French person, encore. Um, one of uh. these temples, a rival to that of Solomon, and erected by some ancient Michelangelo. Two two names there. Yes, um, your friend and mine, Michelangelo. I know. <laughs> um, it's like when he when he gets in trouble and his mom uses his middle name yeah. too, like Michelangelo Bonarotti. <sighs> Might take an honorable place beside our most beautiful buildings. It is grander than anything left to us by Greece or Rome, and presents a sad contrast to the state of barbarism in which the nation is now plunged. Oh, shots fired! So cool, cool story. Um, so he didn't do like a great job archaeologizing since he was like, it's like Egypt. <laughs> but in his defense, he was a naturalist by profession. Um, so his wheelhouse sounded more like another quote that I'm going to read you, which remember that sound you made? <laughs> so this is something he wrote nearish there. Um, okay. And this was published in 1864 because uh, he tootled around in, in Southeast Asia for a bit and ultimately died there. Um, and, Oof. If we want to talk about things lost to the jungle, his tomb oh. was. <laughs> that has a certain flavor about it. And then somebody mm. found it. What and they were that? like, oh. <laughs> but huh. before he died, he did some stuff. So, ahem, here's one of his entries. 
the profound stillness of this forest and its luxuriant tropical vegetation are indescribable and at this midnight hour impress me deeply. The sky is serene, the air fresh, and the moon's rays only penetrate here and there through the foliage in patches which appear on the ground like pieces of white paper dispersed by the wind. Nothing breaks the silence but a few dead leaves rustling to the earth, the murmur of a brook which flows over its pebbly bed at my feet, and the frogs answering each other on either side, and whose croaking resembles the hoarse barking of a dog. Now and then I can distinguish the flapping of bats, attracted by the flame of the torch which is fastened to a branch of the tree under which my tiger skin is spread, or, at longer intervals, the cry of some panther calling its mate, and responded to from the treetops by the growling of the chimpanzees, whose rest the sound has disturbed. So, For maybe he of also... Amber's sleepy night-night readings, go but, to Patreon. <laughs> but also... Correct me if I'm wrong, but chimpanzees are not native to Southeast Asia. I will not correct you because you are not wrong. Chimpanzees are, in fact, native to Africa. So, you know, he wasn't a great archaeologist. But as for his skills as a naturalist. (laughs) Look. (laughs) So... Mahut's monumental contribution to world heritage um, sparked a surge in interest among French academics in historical and ancient Southeast Asia, leading to the establishment of l'école française d'extrême orient. Extrême. Uh, yeah, which sounds like a school that would require elbow pads. <laughs> Extreme Orient School. <laughs> um, so, but scholars since then have have long argued against, and with good reason, um, against this so-called ruined city interpretation. Um, And as research continues, archaeological evidence is shedding even more light on the decline of the Angkorian civilization. So decline, not same, same collapse. Um, The process was much longer and more complex than previously imagined, certainly imagined by our boy Henri, um, Angkor's collapse may be better described as a transformation. Thank you for coming to my poetry reading. My poetry, my Henri Moho poetry. Wasn't that slam. like really good until the part yeah, where you said no, a dumb thing? Yeah. No, it was beautifully written. I was like, oh yeah, the pebbly brook. Oh, yeah. chimpanzees. <laughs> no. You're like, hey, <laughs> ah, we're sleeping up here. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. You need to sound like a frog. Woof. <laughs> the horse bark of a frog not only is it a bark it's a horse bark which is a neigh that's how horses bark <laughs> okay now that we're done dunking on Henri, <laughs> tell us about some archaeology i'm gonna do that uh so let me scoot back into history real quick uh first so by the end of the 13th century ce numerous changes were taking place at angkor angkor the last Encore. major what st- <laughs> the last major stone temple there was constructed in 1295. Pilots? And the latest... Hmm? Pilots? <laughs> Get out. I'm sorry. Like, I had, like... I was thinking about, like, the last the X major Games. stone temple pilots. <laughs> yeah. And it just makes me think of 1996. <laughs> God. 
The last major stone temple pilots there was constructed in 1295, and the latest Sanskrit inscription dates to the same year. The last inscription in Khmer, the language of Cambodia, appears a few decades later in 1327. Oh, oh, wait. Um, in the show notes, I'm going to include um, a thing from the British Library that is a look at Henri Mouhot's almost lost um, epigraphic notes. It's some like oh, cool okay. scans of cool. his research on like Khmer language and other stuff, which I can't read it. So I don't know if he was also wrong about that, but it's well, in the show notes. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you. You're um, welcome. <laughs> so constructing stone temples and writing inscriptions are things that elites do. So <laughs> They're bougie things to do. <laughs> these, these last instances at the Angkorian capital happened during the region-wide adoption of Theravada Buddhism that replaced Hinduism. And this religious shift disrupted the pre-existing Hindu-based power structures. So um, the emphasis moved from state-sponsored stone temples and royal bureaucracy to more community-based Buddhist pagodas built from wood. Around the same time, maritime trade with China was increasing. The relocation of the capital further south, near the modern capital, cap, capital, Sorry. near the modern, huh? Sorry. I said, I said capital instead of capital. The capital. <laughs> the capital. <laughs> oh. The relocation of the capital further south, near the modern capital of Phnom Penh, allowed rulers to take advantage of these economic opportunities. Paleoclimate research has highlighted region-wide environmental changes that were taking place at the time, too. So there is a lot popping off at this, at this point. A series Was of it decades... Phenom... No. Phenomenal. I was trying to get popping off out of Phnom Penh. Oh, Phnom, I was going Phnom with... Phnom Penh? No, it's not working. <laughs> For sure not. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> uh, and now my, uh. my frog is getting agitated you're barking frog oh <laughs> <laughs> okay a series of decades-long droughts interspersed with heavy monsoons disrupted Angkor's water management network that was meant to capture and disperse water so they have all of these irrigation things set up but it doesn't work if there's this crazy like cycle of of drought and and monsoon one study of the moats around it's so hot one study of the <laughs> <laughs> i'm I can feel sweat, like, running down my torso. <laughs> Hold, please. One study of the moats around the walled urban precinct of Angkor Thom suggests the city's elite were already departing by the 14th century, almost 100 years before the supposed sack of the capital by uh, the, the Thai state. So, anthropologist Alison Carter, in collaboration with the Cambodian government's Apsara Authority that oversees the Angkor Archaeological Park, began excavating within Angkor Wat's temple enclosure in 2010. Instead of focusing on the temple itself, the team looked at the occupation mounds surrounding the temple. In the past, people would have constructed houses and lived on top of these mounds. LIDAR surveys in the region clarified that Angkor Wat and many other temples, including nearby Tafram, were surrounded by a grid system of mounds within their enclosures. Remind folks what LIDAR is. LIDAR stands for Light Detection and Ranging, and it is a surveying method that measures the distance to a target by uh, basically shooting a laser at it. That There's measures... one like a mile and a half from my house. Pew, pew, pew. 
Um, so basically, it pulses a laser light uh, often from an aircraft at the ground and measures the distance um, of the things on the ground by how long it takes for the lasers to bounce back. So it can create uh, a topographical look at the ground below, which often serves to reveal structures that aren't visible to the naked eye. So it's a cool method of, of revealing things that might not be visible uh, when you're on the ground. So over three field seasons, Carter and her team excavated these uh, occupation mounds, uncovering remains of dumps of ceramics, hearths and burnt food remains, post holes, and flat-lying stones that might have been part of either a floor surface or a path. So um, about these mounds, here is a, a kind of long quote from uh, Alison Carter. Quote, <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is not clear yet who lived on these mounds, as we have not yet found artifacts that give clues as to the inhabitants' occupations. Inscriptions describe the thousands of people needed to keep the temples functioning, so we suspect that many of those who lived on the mounds worked in some capacity in the Angkor Wat temple, perhaps as religious specialists or temple dancers, musicians, or other laborers. During our excavations, we collected burnt organic remains, primarily pieces of wood charcoal that were associated with different layers or features like hearths. Using radiocarbon dating, we identified dates for 16 charcoal pieces. We used these dates to build a more fine-grained chronology of when people were using the temple enclosure space, providing a more nuanced idea of the timing of occupation at Angkor Wat. So that, uh, that was the end of the quote. That radiocarbon dating indicates that the temple of Angkor Wat itself was never actually abandoned. What are you laughing at? But you're like, that was the end of the quote. <laughs> <laughs> the landscape surrounding the temple appears to be reoccupied by the late 14th or early 15th centuries during the period that Angkor was supposedly sacked and abandoned. Um, and then it remained in use until the 17th or 18th centuries. Since it was a huge, important temple complex, we can look at Angkor Wat as kind of a microcosm of broader developments in the Angkor civilization. The temple complex seems to have undergone transformations at the same time that the broader Angkorian society was also reorganizing. Significantly, though, Angkor Wat was never abandoned. Carter writes, quote, What can be abandoned is the tired cliché of foreign explorers discovering lost cities in the jungle, end quote. Hear, hear. While it seems clear that the city experienced a demographic shift with the elite members of the society piecing out around the 14th century, certain key parts of the landscape were not deserted. People returned to Angkor Wat and its surrounding enclosure during the period that historical chronicles say the city was being attacked and abandoned. So, to describe Angkor's decline as a collapse is a misnomer, as it usually is. It's, it's never really ever a collapse, is it? Or at least very, very rarely when people go back and look at sites where there was a historical collapse, you know, um, it's almost never that. Ongoing archaeological studies are showing that the Angkorian people were reorganizing and adapting to a variety of turbulent and changing conditions. I was preparing the PSD resistance of my, oh, no. of my, my work is, here. Is it, a, is it a visual? It is a visual. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. So now that we know that the decline of Angkor Wat was not a collapse by any means, let me take it a step further in telling you what it wasn't and tell you that it was not aliens who were responsible for said collapse that didn't happen. So What? Yeah. So usually <laughs> I'm just, stay with me here. Usually I'm trying to convince people on the internet that aliens aren't responsible for building pre-modern architectural wonders. They're not. Um, and this time 
However, I'm trying to convince people on the internet that aliens didn't destroy it. So, just to catch y'all up, Absolute Dirtbags over on Patreon already know that Knowledge Fight is a favorite podcast of mine. Uh, and in addition to looking at Alex Jones and Infowars and that corner of the internet, um, the guys that host Knowledge Fight also include in their extended universe um, conspiracy theorists of a decidedly extraterrestrial bent. I so, think that corner of the the internet must smell like beef jerky. A lot of that extraterrestrial stuff falls into the realm of ancient aliens or Nibiru and all that nonsense. Woof. However, this is something that I'm going to read from my phone. Project Camelot. Oh, Project Camelot. Oh, so, that dude. So, yeah. So Project Camelot is, is a... Is a, so I'll include in the show notes a link to the episodes of Knowledge Fight that deal with Project Camelot and its proprietrix. Um, but a lot of the episodes involve um, conversations with a guy who is the subject of the dollop episode, a very early dollop episode on the Pendragon plot, um, like the Pendragon of Marin. Um, and Homeboy is now... Um, he's just, serving time in prison, isn't he? He very yeah. No spoilers for the episode Sorry. of the dollop, but Sorry. That, so that guy currently resides in in Vacaville, California, oh, in, in a correctional center. Um, <laughs> and um, he now spends his time in part talking about his involvement in the secret space force. So he has, um, and so the proprietrix of project Camelot goes and interviews him and then shares her notes in a total recall from time to time. Um, and so I'm going to read some of those notes and I'm not going to link this on the show notes because she has a lot of ads on like, I don't want to, I don't want to contribute to her. (laughs) No, but Vietnam and Angkor Wat. The alien agenda. This is a subheader. I'm already tired. (laughs) I asked Mark. That's the gentleman's name. Um, He is not gentle. That's this dude's name. I asked Mark about what was really going on with the Vietnam War because I had been reading Annie Jacobson's book, The Pentagon's Brain, um, about the biowarfare and chemtrails being designed, devised to supposedly fight the North Vietnamese, and it struck me as a cover for something much more secret and diabolical. I had remembered somewhere in the back of my mind a report Mark had released or mentioned in a passing saying, it, it had mentioned in passing saying that Vietnam was about fighting a certain alien race. Mark said we had to go back to Angkor Wat, and this in parentheses, a civilization over a million people of over a million people who disappeared without a trace. No, he, he didn't. Shush. He said what happened there was a race of, in essence, spider beings, um, the mm. size of VW beetles, also called trogs, uh, who invaded Earth in that area of the Far East. Is this man aware it, of physics? Oh, goodness, no, no. You'll have to listen to Knowledge Fight to find out to what degree he's not aware of physics. Uh, The Far East, being here, Laos, Cambodia, and other countries. That's um, pretty far. Because there are are so many portals and stargates in that area. They decimated the area and killed everything within two and a half days using mind control and a type of microwave technology that killed everything but left the building standing and no bones because they ate all the remains of the humans. He said that this was again threatened soon after world war two. So 
That's I a, feel like I'm going to throw up. Now, why am I telling you all this, Anna? I don't know. Is it to upset me? No. There is a connection <laughs> that brings what I am contributing to this episode full weird circle. So we're talking about spider beings. Yes. Remember our friend Henri? Yes. Henri Muhot. There is a species of spider indigenous to this area named after him. What? Um, Poultis Muhoti. Um, it was first described in 1863. Um, by Henri or, or no, a by some naturalist? guy. Okay. I'm assuming some guy. Um, and its common name is Muhot's rolled leaf spider. I'm huh. going to send you a photo. Don't make that oh. sound. I'm going to send you a photo. So check out this trog. <laughs> so the rolled leaf spider does what it says on the tin. Boy, that's awesome. It's a spider that looks like a rolled actually. up leaf. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't know what. I mean, that's that's horrifying. But also really cool, but also yeah. not not even close to the spider I was thinking of, which I will send you a picture of. There, I just I just tied it all up with a bow. The that spider was a beautiful beings, spider shaped bow. Spider beings named after Henri Muhot. These are my wheelhouses, my little subdivision of wheelhouses. <laughs> Spiders, Colo- colonialism, alien stuff. <laughs> uh, I cherish your contributions. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back in your ears soon with new episodes and hopefully less yelling about spiders. Uh, And you can find those episodes on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and wherever else you get your pods. And while you're there, you can um, leave us some reviews and stars and shouts out. No spiders. yeah. No, please don't leave us spiders. No spiders. You can... (laughs) You can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And follow us on all those places and enter to win some awesome stickers. Uh, all of those social medias are together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And from time to time, we put out extra bonus content for our Patreon subscribers beyond just like the usual extra bonus content. Um, none of that is spiders. Um, you can get access to bonus goodies like video content. I tried to like, <laughs> I tried to put a spin on it, but then I realized that like, you can't be like video con. <laughs> uh, for Vid as con. little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thank you for listening. We love you. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.